Brothers and sisters, let's begin to begin to examine this chapter from God's Word closely and verse by verse. Before we do, we must remember that in the New Testament, Jesus directs us to see in this particular experience of Jonah, as we saw in the the bulletin at the top of your bulletins, the the, the scripture meditation. Our Lord directs us to see in this particular experience of Jonah and a special connection to his own experience. That's the first thing we need to keep in mind. That's what we are to see in this chapter. We must also not understand this chapter as necessarily progressing in a linear fashion, as in A to Z. All right, with those two things in mind, let's dive into Jonah 2. Look at verse 2. In verse 2 we find what is actually a summary of Jonah's experience in the following verses. But notably, the expression in verse 1 of Jonah's being in the belly of a fish, notably that's been changed into the belly of Sheol. So verse 2 is a summary, a shorthand representation of the most important aspects of all that follows. So now let's look at verse 3. First you will see that Jonah says that God has cast him into the deep. Not that the sailors did it. And this recalls to my mind the experiences and the words of Joseph from the book of Genesis. You'll recall that he told his brothers that although they had sold him to the merchants, that it was God who did it. God did it in order, he tells us in the text, to save a multitude. So the one was cast into a pit by his brothers. The other was cast into the deep by his shipmates. In both cases, it was God, we are told, who was behind it. And in both cases... The divine motivation was to save men. That's an interesting correspondence between these two types of Christ, Jonah and Joseph. Let's move on in the chapter to arrive at its main message. In verse 3, Jonah says that he has been cast into the heart of the seas. And that means that he is far from dry land, far from the abode of men. But then Jonah's account begins to take on aspects that seem strange for someone praying from the belly of a great fish. He says that the flood surrounded him and that God's waves and billows passed over him. I thought he was inside the belly of a fish. Let's read on. In verse 4, Jonah relates his feelings in these terms. He has been driven away from God's sight. Here he's in a sense, in essence, saying he has been forsaken by God. Then he reveals in verse 4 a note of confidence. And he shall yet come out of his predicament. He will look upon the temple again. In verse 5, the description of his experience continues. He says at this point that he has gone under the surface. The waves and billows that had battered him in verse 3 are now above his head. He's gone under. And the waters have closed up over him and are drowning him. 
He's described as being in a free fall now. The dark and the deep are all about him. This is how Jonah's experience is cast. In terms of first being thrown into the sea by God, the waves and billows beating him, then his dropping below the surface of the waters, and then his falling down, down, down into the black abyss. But we just read that Jonah had been swallowed by a great fish, specially appointed by God, and that would spew the prophet out again on the shore of the eastern Mediterranean in three days' time. How could these things be happening to Jonah if he's inside the fish? You might answer that these were Jonah's words and experiences before the fish swallowed him. But verse 1 says that he prayed all of this from the belly of the fish. The prayer then asserts in verse 6 that his descent did not end until he reached the very bottom of the sea, where, as it says in the last half of verse 5, you'll notice, weeds wrapped around his head, holding him fast. And he adds in verse 6 that this took place at the root of the mountains. Then he even says that he went down to the land, whose bars closed upon him forever. Why is Jonah's prayer cast in such terms? If Jonah is actually in the gut of a giant fish, how could the man in these verses hit the bottom of the sea, where he touched the roots of the mountains and was ensnared in the weeds growing there? Does this suggest that the fish was merely a literary device, a personification of the sea, perhaps? That Jonah was never actually swallowed by a literal great fish? The answer to that question is that all Jonah was swallowed by a giant fish, especially appointed for this task by God. For Jesus says in Matthew 12 that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. The record of experiences we see in this chapter are actually meant to relate Jesus' experiences, not Jonah's. Although Jonah was swallowed by a giant fish, allow me to repeat, and this fish was especially created and appointed by God, the record of experiences we see in this chapter are actually meant to relate Jesus' experiences, not Jonah's. We know this. First, because these descriptions from verses 2 through, through 9 do not relate the experiences of a man swallowed by a whale but the experiences of someone falling like a stone to the depths of the deep and coming to rest at the deepest point of the abyss. Jonah did say these words. The text says he prayed these words. But like with other prophets, what he spoke had more reference to Christ than to himself. And more on that later. Please note for now how verses 2 through 9 are probably arranged differently in your Bible than the verses that precede verse 2 and follow verse 9. Look at your Bible. The lines might be much shorter for verses 2 through 9 than they are in the rest of the book of Jonah. That's the way they are laid out in my Bible. And this is meant to signal a switch in verses 2 to 9 
from prose to poetry, from history to verse, from chronicle to song. The sudden appearance in the middle of this book of a poem, of a psalm of thanksgiving, has caused many biblical critics to suggest that these verses were not part of the original story, but were added later on by another hand. It is, in fact, rather jarring, the sudden appearance of poetry in the story of Jonah. And that cannot be denied. But this sort of thing is not unheard of in Scripture. We find this kind of thing, for example, in Exodus 15, where the song of Moses suddenly appears in a text of historical prose. Prose meaning simply non-poetic writing. Now I point all of this out because although Jonah did pray this prayer, we should see this not as a proper poetic description of his experiences, but of the experiences of the one Jonah typified. This is why I say that the experiences presented to us in this poem correspond more with how Jesus might poetically describe his coming under divine wrath and forsakenness, than Jonah would describe his experiences of being swallowed by a whale. How could these words of Jonah be anything but? How could the referent of these words be anything but Jesus' own experiences? Think about Psalm 22, which records David's experiences poetically. Think about how his experiences related in that psalm actually have their fullest referent in Christ's experiences on the cross a thousand years later. In one place in that psalm, David writes, They have pierced my hands and my feet. They have pierced my hands and my feet. That remark had no real referent that we know of in the life of David, except perhaps an attempt on his part to, co to capture, metaphorically, what he experienced at the hands of his enemies. But we know that the fullest referent for those words of David in that psalm was the experience of Jesus at his crucifixion. The same holds with several of the expressions regarding Jonah's experience after being cast into the deep. They have less to do with Jonah than they have to do with Jesus Christ some eight centuries later. Now the poem, which as I said runs from verses 2 to 9 of this chapter in Jonah is actually a collection of direct quotes and obvious allusions from the Psalter that is the Book of Psalms. And this fact supports our understanding of this poem in Jonah 2 as being a psalm of the Christ under the wrath of God. And that is because the Psalter should be understood as the personal songbook of the Christ. You should, in fact, read the Psalms in the person of Jesus Christ. That is, read them through Christ's eyes. Read them as if he wrote them to be song, sung by himself. And that is when the Psalter will often have its fullest meaning. Edmund Clowney, the late president of Westminster Seminary, described Jesus as the singing Savior because of this fact. So the book of the Psalms is Jesus' songbook. And this fact helps us to see Jonah's poem as being more about Jesus Christ than about Jonah. Because Jonah's poem in chapter 2 is actually a collection of bits and pieces from a number of, of psalms from our, our Savior's songbook. 
And the list runs into around a dozen psalms. I won't tell you which. You can ask me later if you want. But let's move on. But before we do, let's, let's go back. Let's go back to Psalm 18, where we just were, for our scripture reading. We'll highlight verses 4 through 7, and then a few other verses. Psalm 18, starting at verse 4 to verse 7. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Jump ahead to verse 16. 16 to 24. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can attribute his deliverance from death to his righteousness. Only his hands, brothers and sisters, are clean. Let's turn back to Jonah 2. As you do, and you can look it through this chapter of Jonah later to confirm, but there's no hint of repentance in Jonah chapter 2. There is no hint of repentance for sin in Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2 is instead a prayer of thanksgiving to God, a prayer of deliverance from God's abandonment. It is ultimately a song about Christ's fall into Sheol, his descent into the underworld, the realm of the dead, and the singing Savior is brought up again with a psalm of thanksgiving upon his lips, that salvation is of the Lord. Verses 2 through 9, then the author redirects the reader's focus away from Jonah to the one Jonah typifies. And he formally signals this by the sudden shift from historical prose to poetry, and materially accomplishing this by relating experiences more appropriate to Christ than to Jonah. Now look at verse 6 of Jonah chapter 2, where we left off. Note how the singer says that the bars of the deepest point of the underworld were closed upon him forever. Then the next line, the very next line says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit. 
No ordinary man's experience could make that apparent contradiction work. Bars closed upon me in the prison of Sheol forever, yet you brought me up from the pit. This combination of ideas shows that this is a portrayal of the person and the work of Christ, who alone, as the God-man, could bear the eternal consequence of sin and still rise up after the fact. As the sin-bearer, the Messiah's descent to the deepest pit of the underworld was final. The sin that remains there in the depths of the sea of divine judicial forgetfulness, it would have held him fast there forever too. But the Messiah was not in fact guilty. He had kept his hands clean. So the Father had to deal with him according to his righteousness. As we just read in Psalm 18. The Father had to bring him up again. But the sins that he had borne there for his people... He left down there, never to be remembered again. You might recall the words of the prophet Micah out of chapter 7 of his book from our assurance of pardon last time we were together when we dealt with Jonah chapter 1, which reads, You cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You cast all our sins into the depths. Of the sea. Remember too how I pointed out that Jonah was taken up in the text, in the Hebrew, in the same way that sin is often described in the Bible as being taken up and away. God did this all in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this was typified by the prophet Jonah's experiences and was sung of poetically and prophetically by Jonah in this chapter. Let's deal with some application from this text for believers in the Lord of any day. The Christian. The Christian will likewise often feel battered and beaten by God's waves and billows. God's providence often appears unscrutable when the hand of the Lord is resting heavy upon one's life. Matthew Henry, Henry says this, God's dear saints and servants are sometimes encompassed with the floods of affliction, with troubles that are very forcible and even violent, that bear down all before them, and that run constantly upon them, as the waters of a river in a continual succession, one trouble upon the neck of another. So we too partake at times of the sense of abandonment that's depicted in this chapter. And we can find ourselves feeling like the kind of thing reflected in verse 4. I am driven away from your sight. Or to put it another way, we sometimes feel we can say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Often our sufferings appear meaningless, as if they serve no purpose. But consider, beloved, as you find yourselves in the midst of very real sorrow, and even in a very real sense of abandonment, that you are, in fact, singing this song after Jesus. 
through your union with Christ by faith, you are made a partaker of his sufferings, not to atone for sin, for that was his work alone, but that you might be conformed to his image. That union between Christ and his church, between Christ and you, is a spiritual reality. There is a real identity between the head and the body. You are his bride, and if you are his bride, you are one flesh with him. And this spiritual union between us and Jesus Christ is also sealed by and pictured in our baptism. At Romans 6, verses 4 and 5, we read, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. One of the things signified by our baptism, according to the scripture, is coming under the judgment of God. At 1 Peter 3.21, we are told that our baptismal waters correspond to the judgment waters of the great flood of Noah. In Christ, his people too have already passed under the judgment waters of God's wrath. And in him, we too have come up again. This is one of the realities signified and sealed by the waters of our baptism. He was raised for our justification, the scripture says. Through union with Christ, we are also made partakers of his sufferings, his experiences, as well as his resurrection. Although our justification is not something that we can act out or contribute to, After our justification, we are more and more conformed to his image. And one of the ways we are more and more conformed to his image is by partaking of his sufferings. But the abandonment and pain we sometimes feel is not the whole song of the Savior in Jonah 2, is it? In the midst of your being beaten by the waves and the billows, In feeling as though you are driven away from God's sight, remember that Christ, on your behalf, sang that song first. But then remember the rest of the song, too, including, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is through union with him who can sing the psalms, and can sing Jonah chapter 2, which comes from the Psalms, that we too can sing the Psalms and Jonah 2 as if they were our own. That is why it is so often moving to find exactly what we are feeling at the moment in the Psalms. It is all because of the common feeling between our depths of soul and His. His Psalms therefore naturally resound as deep calls to deep in our own souls. His songbook is therefore your songbook too. If you are not yet trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are not, know and understand 
that you have no part in the good news of these verses, but only in their bad news. The weeds and tendrils of deepest hell will not let you go if you are not in Christ. If you are not in Christ, they will hold you fast forever. Unless you are united to this Savior by faith and by repentance, you can never come up again from the waters of God's judgment. The bars of that place will never release you, but will lock you into that dreadful netherworld of Sheol. Unless, as Psalm 18 says, your righteousness is perfect before God. It is only through union with that one, that one and only man of innocent blood, Jesus Christ, that you may complete this song. Let us close by reading together a passage of Isaiah 43. Please turn to Isaiah chapter 43, and we will close. If you are united to Jesus Christ through faith and repentance, remember, beloved, that your Savior not only bore the full measure of God's wrath on your behalf, He not only was raised from the depths of Sheol for your sake, He is also right there with you as the waves and the billows of His providence batter you now. Read along with me Isaiah 43, verses 1 to the beginning of verse 3. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, They shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Let us pray.